Good morning, Village Church of Bartlett. It is great to be here this morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor at Village Church East, and it's my privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. I want to bring you greetings from our church. We have, like you, been doing online services for the past 14 weeks. We're anxious to start making a regular connection in person, but for now, we continue to meet online. And now that's brought us to this very special day, which is Happy Father's Day. For all you fathers out there, God bless you. You have an amazing uh, opportunity to bless other people with the way that you raise your family. Fathers are a gift from the Lord. Sometimes I don't always feel like I pull off being a dad very well. Sometimes I do okay if I do say so myself. Uh, And my kids are all watching this, so they're all snickering right now. Uh, But sometimes I forget all the eyes that are watching me constantly. Uh, I've noticed that as a dad, I kind of create a culture for my family. Dads have this unique opportunity to do this. Uh, Maybe you've had bad experiences with your dad and that's created a culture for you in your mind. And you look back on it with not very good uh, memories. And maybe some of you had absent dads. Uh, These are just reminders to us that we live in a fallen world. But dads have this amazing innate ability, this gift from God, that they would create cultures in our families. My dad, he created a culture where we would always be together. He would involve us with work. Uh, He saw that as we worked together, we did chores together, we'd be growing closer together. And I think back on what uh, my time with him was in the yard or doing housework or doing a project And I would constantly think to myself, this is no fun at all. But now that I'm older and I'm a dad, it's kind of interesting to me how much I would give for just one more time in the yard working with him. Uh, We would also spend a lot of time doing other things, fishing and going on vacations and things like that. But my dad, he would have this great ability to kind of pull us in and create a culture for what a dad looked like to me. And now that I'm older and I'm a dad myself, I'm amazed at how much I do the same thing for my kids. They would say that I am just like my dad, pulling them into jobs or ministry or opportunities to serve the Lord. And and that's kind of a lot like my own dad. He created a culture without even thinking about it. And lo and behold, that had bled down into me. And now I have a tendency to do the same thing. I realize I carry this trail of my dad into my own family. Fathers have this unique ability to create culture in their homes. And It's interesting because as we get to this plague, this last plague in Exodus, we come to this plague and it is introduced to us through the eyes of a family, more specifically through the eyes of a father, pulling his family into a brand new culture. It's a challenge that we are given in this this Exodus plague, this last plague, for each one of us to evaluate the way that We are creating the culture in our families around us. Today can be a great encouragement to those who are looking to create a godly, biblical culture in their families. And it begins with this last plague, interestingly enough. This this drives these families to do a new activity together. They're given a new calendar with new holidays. They're given a new name. And now they're given this activity to do together that the father initiates and the family is pulled together in order to do it. It's a culture that is, that is circled around faith in God. It's a culture of practicing faith together. God has them do this activity of killing the lamb, the spotless lamb, and applying the lamb to the tops and the sides of the doors. 
It would be it would be this first moment that a father decides that he is going to obey God and he is going to initiate a brand new culture in his family together. As the head of the household, he begins to set the stage of faith as prime importance for what the family would do from now on. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Exodus Exodus, this last plague is an amazing one. It's found in chapter 12, and we're going to start reading in verse 29. The, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock. Firstborn, firstborn, firstborn. All the people, firstborn, all the animals, firstborn, would be killed if there was no blood applied to the door. Firstborns have a tendency to change your life. I remember when I had my firstborn. I wasn't a dad until I had my firstborn. And when Beth told me she was pregnant, it was like this, this, this plethora of emotions. I was nervous. I was, I was anxious. I was excited all at the same time. And then Abby comes along and I find out what it's like to be a dad. And I practiced on her and now I have four later and hopefully I'm getting it right by, by the last one. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn was the most important part of the family unit next to the parental unit. The firstborn was given the responsibility of carrying on the family name. He was given the responsibility of representing the family when the family wasn't there, when the parental authorities weren't there. He was given the responsibility to divvy, divvy up the property after the death of the parental, um, parental units. He was groomed his whole life to understand the importance that he had as the firstborn in the family. And the firstborn is the one who the family invested the most in. And this night represents this very valuable thing being taken away from families who did not demonstrate faith in God. This is a devastating plague, not just because it brings death to the firstborn, but because it brings death to the firstborn. Look in verse 30. Pharaoh rose up early in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. Listen to this. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. A great cry. There was no house unaffected. We, we did this activity in my community group where we had everybody who was a firstborn raise their hand. Male, female, if you're a firstborn, raise your hand. And quite a few hands went up. And then we said, okay, if your parents are firstborn, raise your hand. And a lot of hands went up. Okay, what about your grandparents? And you know what happens when you do that activity? Everybody has their hands up. You know why? Because everybody was impacted by this plague. You would lose somebody you loved. And that's why the Bible describes it as a great cry in the land of Egypt. It's also interesting to note that Pharaoh rose up in the night. What got Pharaoh out of bed? Was it a noisy death? That could be the case. Maybe it was a, a noisy, painful death and that awoke him from his sleep. Or maybe, and church, this is what I'm guessing. Maybe everybody was sleeping with one eye open. It's when you put your kid to bed. It's like, it's like when they're sick and you're thinking to yourself, I got to check on them. I got to check on them. I got to make sure they're all right. Even if the blood was not applied to the door, everybody was sleeping and they were on edge because they must have been thinking to themselves, what if it's true? And I got to think to myself, if you even had an inkling 
of doubt that maybe this was going to happen, why would you not apply the blood to the door just in case? I think these were folks that weren't quite believing God, but they they were willing to still sit up at night and check on their firstborn. They had fear enough to check, but not fear enough to to, to believe. Then the wailing started. And I think that's what woke everybody up. Throughout the land of Egypt, not a house was unaffected. Somebody in that house that you loved died. And as people began finding out, if you were, even if you were slumbering and a little bit in your sleep, you'd hear the wailing from the community around you. And you, you'd, first thing you'd do is run to the bedroom of your firstborn. And you'd look and you'd, you'd hope to God that they were okay. Blood on the door, blood off the door. You've got to think everybody's doing the same thing. Can you imagine if you were a parent and you heard the wailing outside and you, you'd been up several times already in the night, but now you ran to the room thinking the worst and you find out that your firstborn has passed. But church, can you imagine if you're one of the people of God who applied the blood to the door in faith and you run to the room, fear, worry, anxiety, you run inside and you see that your firstborn is safe. Notice the difference between the two groups of people. There was peace for those who believed in God. And I got to tell you, church, I think there was a lot of thankfulness after that moment. Would you not hug your child? Would you not weep over them? Would you not stop kissing them? But for those who lost their firstborn because of their lack of faith, the anguish had to be unbearable. The world is constantly in a panic because they don't, believe necessarily what God says, but somewhere down deep inside, there's a voice telling them, what if it's true? Our hope is set on something else. We do not fear as Christians because our attention is elsewhere. We don't get panicked because God is in control. And that's what makes the difference between those who believe God and those who don't. Verse 31 Pharaoh finds out his firstborn is dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. Notice the urgency of Pharaoh. He summoned Moses and Aaron at what point, church? He didn't wait for the morning, did he? When did he summon them? At night. He calls them in because he is urgent. If they stay a minute longer, God knows what's going to happen next. So he calls them in at night. He's urgent for them to go. In fact, there's five imperative words in these sentences we just read. They are rise up, get out, go, and serve. In other words, in English, we would say, go, go, just go. Pharaoh is casting them out as desperately as he was trying to keep them. He was urgent for them to leave, desperate for them to get out. And this is exactly what God promised Moses. It's amazing to me because when he made the promise to Moses, he said, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So Moses did. You know what Pharaoh said to Moses? You get out. I'm not listening to you. And you know what he did when Moses first said this? He made the burden on the Israelites harder. He made them get their own materials to make bricks. He made their burden harder, and the Israelites did not like Moses. And Moses had to think to himself, there is no way 
Pharaoh is ever going to let them go, much less force them out. And that was the promise of God. Look in verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Listen, for with a strong hand, get that? With a strong hand, he'll send them out. And with a strong hand, he'll drive them out of the land. And Moses had to hear that and think to himself, There is no way that that is going to happen. And lo and behold, that's exactly what's happening right now. He had to think it's impossible. Pharaoh is obstinate. Pharaoh is powerful. Pharaoh is just madder now, and he's going to make, the, make their bricks on their own time. Israel now has begun the dangerous steps of hope. They acted in faith, and now they are beginning to see what they have hoped for come to fruition. Church, faith is the substance of things hoped for. They applied the blood in faith, and now they are seeing God's promise fulfilled. Pharaoh is humbled. He doesn't call them slaves. He said, get the nation of Israel out of here. He doesn't call them slaves. And then he says something very unique, and it is the only words in this passage that are not in the imperative. He said, and bless me also. He looks at Moses and Aaron and he says, I surrender really. So please bless me also. In other words, tell your God to stop. Pharaoh, who claimed never to have heard of Yahweh, given him credit for creation or acknowledged his power over life, now comes to ask God for a blessing in an effort to curb further disaster that would threaten his expansive realm. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent. Get that? Not only Pharaoh, but the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we we will all be dead. If you stick around for any more length of time, we're going to all die. They hear that Pharaoh has collapsed. And now they, like Pharaoh, are urgent to get rid of these, these bad mojo people. They were urgent to get them out. In fact, the word urgent here is the same word. You're going to love this. It's the same word that describes Pharaoh's hard heart. You remember Pharaoh had a hard heart and wouldn't let them go? Now the Egyptians have a hard heart to let them go. They force them out of the land. The first six plagues for them were simple irritations, but these last four have taken away life and property that they love. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and their shoulders. You see the urgency of Israel? God told them, be ready. Wear your shoes, hold your staff, because when it's time to go, you got to go. The urgency of Israel is that they took this bread before it had time to rise. You'd let it rise overnight. You'd beat it down. It would rise again. None of that. Just take your food and go. That's why the bread is unleavened on Passover for the Jewish people. Each child is meant to eat this bread and say, this bread doesn't taste right. What's wrong with this bread? And we're able to say to them, as as an Israelite, they were able to tell, tell their children, this is representation of how quickly we had to leave Egypt and those who kept us in bondage. Verse 36, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians, get this, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. 
And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is the urgency of Israel to get out and ask for provisions. Now, it's one thing to be let go. It's another thing for God to stuff your pants full of gold and silver. Stuff your pockets. Slaves had nothing. How would they survive in their new time together? How would they survive in their journey? But God even thought of that. They would need money to sustain them. They would need gold and silver to trade. They would need these things in order to live. And God thinks all these things through and provides for them. This was a part of God's promise also. When Moses was at the burning bush and God told him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He argued with God eight times. Uh, I don't think I'm the right guy for the job. Uh, I kind of blew it in Egypt. I'm not good anymore. I don't speak so good. You know, he had all of these excuses eight times he argued with God. And God finally said, listen, Moses, just go. Not only will you succeed in getting the people out, but when you do, they will walk out with the riches of Egypt. And I got to think that Moses probably laughed a little bit. Here's what it says. Exodus 3.21, when I give these people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, this is way back at the burning bush before Moses ever talked to Pharaoh. And when you go, you shall not, uh, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask their neighbor and the woman who lives in the house for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. Thus, you shall plunder the Egyptians. This prophecy was fulfilled because God cares for his people. And if he moves you into a new way, into a, into a new aspect of living, into a new realm of faith, if you have to take a step of faith, God provides. This is how much God is in control. This is how much God cares. Verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. It's interesting, by now the group is just men, 600,000, which means altogether some number them between 2 and 3 million people. Throughout their existence in Egypt, they've grown into an enormous nation. They've become a nation in Egypt. And they've had a lot of people come over and become a part of who they were. In fact, you know Joshua and Caleb. Caleb did not come from slavery. Caleb joined them along the way. Rahab joined them in Jericho. There was a group of people uh, that tried to bribe their way into Israel. These, these, this nation became strong over time. And people tried to begin to defect, to be a part of what was going on in Israel, be part of their nation. And God said, every person that joins your group, every person that joins this free group now exiting Egypt is to be considered part of your group, be considered part of your family. In fact, he wrote a law about this in Exodus 19, verse 34. You shall treat the stranger and sojourners with you as the native among you, and you shall love them as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, they were to treat these strangers and sojourners that joined up with them and became a part of them, maybe for a short length of time or for the rest of their generations, treat them as family, as though they were native themselves. But there was more to it. If a stranger sojourns with you and would keep the Passover, verse 48, let his males be circumcised that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. In other words, 
This is a consecration of worship. They were to treat anyone welcome as if they were part of their family. But when it came to worship, they were to worship as God wanted them to worship. Only those willing to live out their faith in God would officially belong to God's people. Verse 48, But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, there's one law that applies to everybody when it comes to worshiping God. They must come to God on his terms. Even sojourners and guests of the Israeli households must follow these rules. If they wanted to worship as Israel, they had to be circumcised. They had to observe Passover with unleavened bread. They had to come to God in reverence. They must worship as God demands. They could not bring their old ways in and incorporate them into a big stew. God said, I need everybody to follow the same laws for worship. Because the point is, sin enslaved you. God freed you. Go all in. Worship God, this God who freed you, with the passion that you have as if you were a slave yourself who'd been freed out of Egypt. Everyone was given two choices. Keep the Passover with Israel on God's terms or don't keep the Passover at all. It was your choice and you could still be treated as family. You could still be treated with love. You'd still be treated as if you belonged, but you would not be part of the family, the spiritual family, unless you worshiped as God wanted you to worship. Verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. People of Israel now included more than just the Jewish people. People of Israel included Egyptians, those who obeyed because they feared God, those who still had their firstborn walking beside them. It included all who demonstrated faith. It didn't matter what racial background you were, what color your skin, what your nationality was, if you're American or Canadian. Everybody was included as if they were natives themselves. Though these were the people who left Egypt in obedience to God, rewarded by God, with their families by their sides. How many times would you hug your firstborn on your journey out of Egypt? Can you imagine how grateful you would be to have that little boy, little girl still walking by your side? But God is not done yet, and that's what begins 13.1. This is the crux of what it means to worship God out of a heart of grateful, thankful and understanding blessings. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is, what's the word, church? Is mine. God now asks for them to consecrate their firsts to him out of a grateful heart. Consecrate their special things. Consecrate their valuable things. Consecrate what is precious to them. The word consecrate actually is kadosh, which means holy. It means to set something aside for the Lord. God is asking for their best to be set apart for his use. Consecration is giving God our best 
for his use in his way. My heart is to give God the best that I own. Giving everything else to him will follow suit after that. Because if I'm able to give him my best, everything else will fall in line. This is why God saved the firstborn and asked for the firstborn. He asked for what's valuable to them. Giving God your first is a, is a great way to keep your heart in check. Structure of priorities becomes this question first. What does God want of my income? Not how much will I make to make me happy, but rather what does God get first now? Or my family, what does God get first now? Not should I raise my kids according to culture? Vocation, not what gets me furthest, not what will I enjoy the most, but rather what gets God furthest and his kingdom furthest if I were to take this job? Relationships, not what gets me fulfilled in a new relationship, but rather how can I use this relationship for God's glory? See, this is consecrating the things, the the possessions, the relationships, everything that we have to God. If you can give him your firsts, everything else will follow. Consecration is a choice to live for God. Slavery is about survival. Consecration, freedom, is about choice. Slavery forces a person to survive, to use everything that they have just to survive. But God has given them freedom, and that provides them with a choice. Will they live out their devotion to God with their firstborn first and everything else to follow. So what? Simple. Freed people understand the urgency of their situation. There's an urgency when God rescues us. The urgency of Pharaoh was get out and take your stuff with you. The urgency of the Egyptians was get out and take our stuff with you. And the urgency of the Israelites was, live it out, and I'll use all my stuff to do it. In Jesus' day, there was a moment of time when he went to a Pharisee's house who invited him for dinner, hoping to just find out a little bit more of who Jesus was. His name was Simon, and he invited Jesus to this dinner. Jesus went, and as they were sitting there at the table, something very unique happened. We're told about this story in Luke chapter 7. You see, when Jesus went over for dinner, he didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't anoint Jesus' head. These were things that you did for a for company that you really appreciated. It'd be like bringing out the nice dishes rather than the stuff that we normally might use for our own families. Simon didn't do any of that. Simon treated Jesus like he was less than him and he was there to interrogate him. And this is where Jesus finds himself for dinner. As a woman walks into the room uninvited and stands behind Jesus. While she's standing there, she begins to weep uncontrollably. And it annoys Simon to death. When there's a break in the conversation... The woman throws herself at Jesus' feet, and her tears begin to wet his feet. The story is found in Scripture in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, 
<laughs> Notice this, church, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar full of ointment. This woman was introduced as a sinner. Is there any question in anybody's mind what this woman did? She had a job that everybody knew she was a moral defect in society. She shows up at the Pharisee's house, at the pastor's house, and she begins to cry uncontrollably. Why? Because her sins made her urgent. She fell at his feet when there's a break in the con conversation and begins to anoint Jesus' feet, not with water, but with her broken tears, and wipe her feet with her hair. And then she took an alabaster jar, an expensive stone. Solomon decorated the temple with alabaster stones. This expensive ointment that she probably could not afford and was given to her by her family. She takes that and spills it over his feet and washes and anoints his feet. This was all she had. It was the best that she had. And she used it to wipe Jesus' feet. Her tears revealed her sin. And this sacrifice revealed her heart. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her hair, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And the Pharisee was indignant. He said Jesus was reckless to allow such a thing to happen at his house. So Jesus gives Simon a parable that he would not soon forget. He gave him a parable about a man who loaned money to two different men. One he gave $50, the other he gave $500, and one day he forgave them both their debts. Then Jesus said to Simon, Simon, which one of these people who owed the money would love the one who gave them the money more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who had been given more money. And Jesus said, you are right. Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. You see, Simon knew the right answers, but he never applied them to his life. So Jesus did it for him. Read this in verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss, kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, you didn't treat me as a, as a royal honored guest, but this woman has not ceased to do it. This woman has given me honor. This woman has seen her situation as urgent and she was in need of rescue. This woman recognized the only one who truly rescues. And she has run to him and confessed in her brokenness what everybody knew she was. And the result, what Jesus said next, had to appall Simon. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The point is, she knew the urgency of her situation. Simon did not. He knew he was missing a little something. But he thought he was pretty much there. When we recognize the disaster of our lives, the emptiness of our lives without Jesus Christ, when we realize the slavery 
that sin has bound us in. And we know that Jesus has rescued us. You see, church, we live differently. We love differently. It affects us to our core. We may not follow the protocols of those around us because we operate on a different level. We operate out of a devotion to a God who has given us more than we deserve and saved us from more than we can imagine. Which brings me to number two. Freed people realize they owe their rescuer everything. This is much more than a passage about who lives and who dies at Passover, at the plague of the 10th plague in Egypt. This passage is about what we realize we owe to God. The Israelites knew what they'd been rescued from. They had proof of God's devotion to them. They had emancipation from bondage of slavery for over 430 years. They had salvation for their families and for their firstborns. They had pockets full of riches they never earned. The hearts of those walking to the promised land and the arms of their, of their loved ones around their little ones who survived and the fathers who survived and the mothers who survived and the grandparents who survived. These were hearts of thankfulness, of gratitude that would blow over into hearts God was hoping would be full of devotion. Their attitude was, Egypt enslaved us. God freed us. We owe all to him. So church, how much do you think God has saved you from? If lots, your life will show it. If little, your life will show it. Live a life consecrated to God as though you know how much you have to be thankful for. As though you realize how much you've been saved from. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, You also be holy in your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Consecrate your life and your things and your family and fathers. You set the culture in your family. Consecrate them to God. If you're not thankful for what you're saved from, you'll not be motivated to do this consecration. Remember, we started this day by talking about what makes a home, a culture of faith in our homes. What kind of culture do you think the thankful fathers of these homes, who were saved by the sacrificed lamb at the time of Passover, created? I would say the kind of cultures in these homes would be cultures that the father wants of obedience, of faith, of hope, of trust in Yahweh God. Why? Because their faith was giving them hope in God. So fathers, don't just be a father to your kids. Be a culture maker. Be somebody that lives out a life of gratitude to God so that your kids might even ask you the question, why do we go to church on Sunday? Why do we give a tithe? Why do we read the Bible together? Why do we pray? And take that opportunity to build a culture of faith in your home. We are lending to that culture every day. You may not be the dad. You may be the mom. You may be the the single parent. You You may be a sibling. You may be one of the children. You have the power to influence culture in your homes. And that church is where the nation is saved. It starts in the home. So church, how much have you been rescued from? If you say lots, 
you will show lots of love. If you say little, that will show too. Sin enslaved you. God freed you. Church, go all in. What's holding you back? Let's pray. Father God, working through this passage of Scripture is very eye-opening. It hits us at the core of who we are. A great cry that goes through a nation, a great cry that even goes through a community, is hard to fathom. To lose something so precious, so valuable to a family is unthinkable. And yet, it happened all over the nation of Egypt. It happened. And it is what it took for your people to be freed. And it is what took for your people to realize they must build cultures of consecration and they have a hope, a living hope in front of them. So, Fathers, we've studied this story for so many thousands of years ago. I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts. In 2020, we would realize we too have much to be thankful for. God, what you have saved us from is unfathomable. What you have promised us is unthinkable. And we are, we are eternally grateful. Help us to live out a love for you that we cannot hold back. May it, may it show in every action, in every way we parent, in every relationship we have, in every way we use our finances. May it impact every area of our lives. And may we begin to create a culture of devotion and consecration to you out of a heart of depth of gratitude. This is my prayer for Village Church of Bartlett. It is my prayer for your people around the world. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.